Good morning, and welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us in ways that get us thinking, get us talking, get us imagining, get us get us connected, and perhaps inspired or challenged to do just a bit more because we've made the connection. So our topic today is the power of story, how it reveals what matters and how it connects us to ourselves and to others. And my co-host is Rick Bernardo. Uh, Rick is an ethicist, a teacher, an advocate, a writer, a musician, a comedian, and he lives his life finding connections and exploring ways of living grounded in ethics. Welcome, Rick. It's me. Some of the time, that's me. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, and Rick, you brought a guest. I did. He's right over here. His name is Lauren Nimi. And I met Lauren uh, – one of his many hats he's worn over the years is uh, executive director of In the Heart of the Beast Theater, which is a gem with many gemstones within. Uh, but uh, let me say a little more because I keep learning about Lauren as well uh, since I worked with him some years ago. Uh, Lauren Nimi for 40 years has been an innovative professional storyteller, all right? Uh, as well as many other things. He's been creating and collecting and coaching, directing, performing, and teaching stories, traditional and personal and funny, scary, erotic, and poetic to audiences of all ages in urban and rural settings. And he tells life uh, as he lives it frequently, artfully, and truthfully. He's published uh, as an author of a number of books, one of them uh, the new book of plots on the use of narratives in oral and written forms. And, and he's co-author with Elizabeth Ellis on the critically acclaimed Inviting the Wolf In, Thinking About Difficult Stories. It's on the value and necessity of stories that were hard, hard to hear and harder to tell. So his recent book is A Brevery for the Lost, just out. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, very easy to find. And he founded also the American School of Storytelling. Uh, he's also – I didn't know this until just recently – 1998 Bush Foundation Leadership Fellow uh, and recipient of the 2016 National Storytelling Network's Lifetime Achievement Award. That keeps racking things up. <laughs> Hi, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, Lauren, I, your, your new book, A Brevery – for the Lost, poems from during and after. Mm -hmm. um, I went and I looked up what brevery meant. Mm -hmm. And it's a book containing the service for each day to be recited, um, recited by those in orders in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And then there's, there's always that little sentence afterwards to kind of help you understand what it means, <laughs> which I thought was particularly interesting. <laughs> And it goes, yeah, a book containing all daily psalms, hymns, prayers, lessons, necessary for reciting. I like that. Um, but the little sentence um, that they used was essentially, this is, um, it's a man. Oh, here it is. He was a man who collected bones and breviary, breviaries. A man who collected bones and breviaries. Well, yeah. Where was, thought, that? Where was that? This it was under um, the Webster and the definition. You know, under the definition, oh, they geez. give like a little sentence, and I'm like, bones and and breviaries, you know. And, and I thought that must be what his book is: bones <laughs> <laughs> and lessons for the days. 
Um, wow. And and you you have in the title uh, from then and now is it or how do you from, do, from during and after? So tell me about during that. So the during was the seven years I was a member of the religious order, Christian Brothers, a Catholic teaching order, and the after is uh, after they tossed me out <laughs> for. <laughs> Uh, well, the joke, you know, the joke I always tell is I was a member for religious order, poverty, celibacy, obedience. I was good at one of them, <laughs> and that was the one that got me tossed out. <laughs> oh, darn! <laughs> or as, or as someone said in the review committee that actually did the tossing, it isn't so much what you believe; it's that you keep saying it out loud. <laughs> oh, jeez! So the you learned early that that the internal monologue. That that you felt more compelled to share, they had wanted to keep internal. Well, what, it, what the essence was is that I came down to um, poverty for me w- was a real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was at the time I was tossed out. I was working with other religious and non-religious with juvenile justice offenders living on basically three hundred dollars a month in food stamps. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I mean. The teaching and the working with the poor was real in a way that I used to say to to the brothers' congregation, you know, this the suburban school and the golfing on weekends is not really poverty. No, no. I found it interesting that you went into a religious order when you also say that your storytelling came when you began as a child fibber. But soon realized that you were less interested in telling lies than in improving the truth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean for you? Well, um, so from the perspective of having done many, many years of storytelling, uh, what I understand is that every one of us brings to stories this incredible – Wealth, this incredible mess, this incredible uh, set of things. And in order to really have the story function, in order for the story to be both truthful and artful, oftentimes it's a matter of what you strip away. It's a matter of not saying everything. It's a matter of some things the audience doesn't need to know. And so. And they can fill in the blank? And they can fill in the blank, or, you know, you invite them into a world. And in the in inviting into the world, you populate that world with enough details so they can orient themselves, and so they can see where they are. Wow! Um, so, I I, I got to say, as from years of stand-up comedy, that is when I watch it or do it. That is the most powerful. If you want to get people, if people are going to laugh, they'll laugh by doing by. Knowing, making the connection. Speaking of connections, radio. I mean, that if they do it themselves, that's a, there's no stopping the laughter or sometimes the tears, depending on what. Right. It, what yeah. right. Wow. So with that, why don't we have you share one of your poems, um, "Walking to the Highway," and this one I believe you you wrote in 1965. Yeah, this is one of the first. This is one of the first ones. Um, this is from the novitiate, right? So when you when you enter the religious order, the very first year is called the novitiate and it's a fundamental formation. Walking to the highway. After we had all the silence we could choke down with the meat and potatoes, after the stacking of the dishes the uncomplaining Mexican nuns would wash, we would walk to the highway, 
down the hill across a bridge, a full mile to the road, and another back. I don't know where he got them from, but one night Marty J. had cigarettes handed out for any taker and joyfully lit when we were out of sight. A savored sharing while we joked like the teens we actually were instead of whomever we were supposed to be after taking vows and robes. Summer heat, winter cold, it made no difference whether it was light or dark, tramping with or without gloves and coat, I welcomed the ritual. I was thinking more than once that when I got to the road, I'd stick out my thumb and climb into the first 18-wheeler that stopped. <laughs> thinking is not doing. Crash the, crush the butt underfoot and turn back on the gravel path, over the bridge, up the hill, deaf to the complaint's voice, under dim stars, imagining tomorrow would be different, that it would be the day I would pack, or find a reason to stay. Was each day a decision for you? Um, not every day, but certainly many were. Uh-huh. Um, you know, And I started with a class of 36. By time we took our first vows at the end of a year, we were 16. Mm-hmm. By time I graduated from college, we were eight. Mm-hmm. If I were to look at that group today, there's only one left who's still a religious and I went to the funeral of one of the other ones last year. So, um, you know, it is – the religious life is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And the reasons one embraces or rejects it or is rejected by it mm-hmm. are multitude. Um, and in, particularly in that time, in, in, you know, in the late 60s, some people were leaving the, the religious order because the church was not liberal enough, fast enough, and other were leaving because the church was too liberal, too fast. <laughs> it couldn't win, could it? No, no. The, you know, and, and the church, well, I won't go into the church. <laughs> uh-huh. But you found a place there. I mean, you were drawn to it. I was drawn to it, yes. I was drawn to the, to the sense of community. I was drawn to the fact that almost everybody who I went to class with who had been in the brothers with me were intellectually sharp, articulate, you know, committed to something. Um, You know, those things were tremendously appealing. And there was social justice you worked in? Well, yeah, yeah. I certainly, certainly (laughs) I, I have worked all, all of my adult life. I have, have been between two poles. Uh, On one side is art and the other side is community building or politics depending on how you want to define that and I've always I've often or always either done both or gone from one to the other back and forth so well today we'll be uh, hearing more of our poems by Laura Nimi uh, to get his book you can go to Amazon and I noticed that um, I could get it next day with my prime membership so keep that in mind folks uh, it is the breviary for the lost Poems Mm -hmm. from the during and after. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be able to to listen to a a trajectory of time Mm -hmm. uh, dipped in uh, various poems. Each each segment will have a poem that we'll have a chance to share about. So stay with us. We'll be back after a few commercials and uh, join Rick Bernardo and I with a conversation with Lauren Nimi.
Welcome back to Connections Radio, where we talk about ideas that matter. And today we're talking about the power of story, uh, how it can reveal relationship to ourselves and how we connect to others. My co-host is Rick Bernardo. Welcome, Rick. That's me. And you've brought a wonderful guest, Lauren Neme. Lauren Neme. He's a poet, author, professional storyteller, and a professional in organ- organizational easier, easy for me to say. He's consultant. an organizational consultant. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. You were going to mention something after our conversation um, as we were talking with well, Lauren about the religious order that he was in. Right. Um, we just heard Walking to the Highway, the poem, and he was talking about his uh, – Initial phase of religious community life and it just struck me how powerful the the sense of community can be, especially in that sort of a focused environment and it can be really different. But regardless, there is this word used in that sort of life called formation Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you're being – you're forming somehow and I think that's always happening but they're a little more deliberate in in those settings. I spent only – Five years in a three-year master's program in theology. So, I, but I was around Franciscan and Jesuit and Dominican seminaries and all of that. But that was a different phase in Berkeley, where it was more like living in a, the Mash television series. Uh, it was just really <laughs> talk about liberal. It was just people saving people on the street, but also um, having parties on the roof and almost falling off. So, um, but anyway. Very different, but I'm still being formed to this day, and and just to just to indicate that that's always happening. I think to people. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if stories is part of forming. Um, in your on your website, you talk about how you tell stories, and whatever you do, it's all stories. It's your oh, life yeah. work. Yeah. Well, you know, um, one of my favorite quotes comes from Joseph Campbell, where he says. You know, a uh, a dream is a private myth, and a myth is a public dream. <laughs> mm. Wow! So it is all stories. I mean, you know, what is the basis of religion? What is the basis of history? What is the basis of, of politics? What is the basis of economy? You know, the story we tell, which is the story of capitalism. You know, I mean, is a powerful story in terms of shaping how the world works. But it is, in essence, a story. You know, we could just as easily tell another story and have it be justify another system. You know, that's what mythology does. It provides us a framework for understanding the world. In your um, in the Amazon, when they talk about your book, the breviary um, for the lost, it talks about prayer. That poems are like prayers. Right. What is a prayer if not acknowledgement of one's relationship to the divine? Yep. Is a prayer a story? Um, it can be. It can be. The The question that arises with prayer is whether or not it is a repeated ritual formula, right? Something mm-hmm. like if you're Catholic, the rosary, or if you're mm-hmm. Buddhist, the, you know, the, the beads or the flags, you know. Um, but – or whether or not it is a, a particular – a particular voice inside oneself or made external in which one looks at one's relationship to to the divine or to the unknown or to a crisis or to grace or to blessing. So is a poem a prayer? Oh, well, (laughs) 
there are people who would, who would question whether or not that is the case reading Bukowski, but yes, a poem is a prayer. <laughs> and you have um, in, in your next poem that you were going to share with us, uh, you have End of the Road, and this one was in 1972. Yep. Set up a little bit what was happening for you in, in 72. So at that um, – uh, so in – I graduated college in 1970 and I went to Appleton, Wisconsin to teach at a Catholic high school where um, I taught art and co-taught uh, cultural studies and had an, a number of adventures including I had one class of students where the only way you could get into the class was you had to be thrown out of other classes and go to the principal <laughs> and the principal had to walk you down to my office and say, here's one for you. Um, you know, and so I had – Did a, anyone try to like misbehave so they could get into your class? Once they found out what the <laughs> class was, yes. <laughs> so you, yeah. you sort of created havoc. <laughs> right, because you know, the class was about filmmaking. Uh, all right? And so I had these kids making films about their lives you know, and it was – you know, for them, it's like one of the most beautiful images I remember is this little Super 8 film in which the monster is the vacuum cleaner, and you see the you see the old style vacuum cleaner, long Kirby, right, rising up and coming closer and closer to the lens of the camera, and it's kind of like you studied, you've studied, you know, you know it, kid. It's scary, uh, yeah, scary. yeah, exactly. You know, every cat's worth night worst nightmare. <laughs> so. But after after that, I went to um, I went back to Anona uh, to work with juvenile justice offenders, and so um, uh, I was working with a number of people. One of them is a guy by the name of Gregory Hansis, who who I dearly love, who's no longer with us. He's passed on, but <laughs> Gregory was the first to arrive, and he found us a place to live, and that's sort of what the setup of the poem is. Please, so, yeah. So, end of the road. We lived at the end of the road where the bus and the milk truck turned around rather than plunged down a rutted gravel path uh, that is the short way to the valley. We lived in a house at the end of its days, the insulation, if there ever was any, long gone, and a single wood heating stove in the kitchen unable to keep more than that room warm. We lived in the kitchen with the summer fly strip hanging from the single electric light, the table was for eating, for writing, for reading, for making the model of the universe Gregory worked on all winter. We lived with the end of money, the end of work, and for myself, the end of expectations about tomorrow. And yet, the day when I was thrown out, I thought to myself, I was finally right where I needed to be. And that was the end of religious life. The end of religious life, yeah, right. So a crossroads? It, um, yeah, not uh, – oftentimes I'm asked, you know, how did I feel about it? And the answer is is that uh, frankly I was, I was actually quite angry for a long period of time um, because uh, – well, again, you know, I, essentially I was, I was tossed out as a result of, of doing what I considered to be and what other people – a lot of other people considered to be the essence of the re- religious work. You know, so. that, that's a, it's a personal integrity when it faces that sort of thing. It really is, a, I would say, a justified anger. Yeah. Well, it's part of your soul, yeah. Y- yeah. your soul commitment. But you found other roots to, to, to create that 
justice. Well, yeah, that I mean, you, you know, for? I mean, as I as I say in a couple of poems, and as I've said in other contexts, you know, just because the title was gone, the work was not. <laughs> right, right. And we'll hear more about that um, with uh, the next poem that that Lauren will be sharing. We do a little bit of a fast forward in the next segment um, to 2018, I believe. Right. Is that uh, yes? Yes, we'll be going to 2018. But before we go to 2018 in the next segment, we'll we'll have Lauren fill in the trajectory um, from the time that he was at that crossroads to the next poem. So stay with us. Stay with Lauren Nimi, who has just finished writing um, a wonderful book that is available on Amazon, and I highly encourage you. And if you are a Prime member, you can get it tomorrow. So. You know, pick and, and they they deliver on Sundays, and that that's a breviary for the lost poems from the during and after. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host, and we have Rick Bernardo as my co-host. Welcome, Rick. Hi, thanks. And we have Lauren Nimi, who for the last forty years has been an innovative professional storyteller, creating, collecting, coaching, directing, performing, teaching, consulting, and his life is stories. That's right. All of that. And you have uh, many books, but you have a new book that just came out in June. Yep. The breviary of <laughs> yep, yep, no, yep, a, yep, yep, yep. Yes or no? <laughs> no, a breviary for the lost. Yeah, right. Poems. That was a setup. I, I, I understand that. No, that June, was a toss. <laughs> the June is what threw me off because oh, it actually came out in July. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, Am- right. Amazon says June. So well, you I know, just... and it's like I'm going June. Damn. What book came out in June? <laughs> well, we didn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So with that, it 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 is a book of poetry. <laughs> that that goes from the time that you were part of an order right. to now. Right. And, yeah. And it is a book of prayers, otherwise known as poems. Right. That, it is that. That allow you to – I'm going to just let you keep – Okay. You're on all right. A roll, all right. So I'm going. on a roll. Uh, you are also an award-winning uh, storyteller and you have had Humanities Awards. One of the things that I really enjoyed when we were talking about the show and preparing for it was you going up to northern Minnesota and collecting stories in bars for the Humanities yeah. Grants. Oh, yeah. yeah you, now, do you consider yourself uh, – and a, a ranger? Are you from the range? I was you, born on the range. Uh-huh. You know. So, you know, they say uh, you can take the boy out of the range, but uh-huh. you can't take the range out of the boy. Yeah, betcha. And I, <laughs> I didn't actually believe that because I was born on the range, but I went to grade school in Albuquerque, New oh, Mexico. Okay. okay. Went to junior high school in Buffalo, New York. Uh-huh. Went to high school here in uh-huh. the Twin Cities. So, you know, my experience of the range had been highly limited mm. until I did that residency until I did the humanities residency, at which point it became abundantly clear to me <laughs> how much range is still there. <laughs> is your family originally from the range? Is that part my, of growing up with you know parents that were from the range? So my, that parent, was... my parents were from there, yeah, aunts and uncles and cousins. You know? mm. Wow. I mean, at, at one point, I had cousins who, starting in Eveleth, Mountain Iron, Chisholm, Hibbing, Buell, oh my gosh. Grand Grand Rapids, you know, it's, it's You covered the territory. That's right. You know, it's like 
Any town you go to, there's either a cousin or there's someone who knows a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> or knows a friend of a friend that knows your cousin. <laughs> That's right. That's right. A woman a woman one time who had seen me do a, a presentation at the Virginia Library uh-huh. saw me coming out of a barbershop where I got my hair cut, which happened to be the same barbershop my uncle Johnny got his hair cut. Uh-huh. She told my cousin Nancy. My cousin Nancy told my, <laughs> my Aunt Sadie. My Aunt Sadie <laughs> called me up. And said, how's your haircut? <laughs> <laughs> That's the range. That's the range. That's right. <laughs> and you were able to collect just – and they wanted you to collect the stories, which I just love. The idea of going up there and, and capturing it from that time period. Well, and it that- was – you know, at that point, this was in 81, 82. Mm-hmm. We were at the height of the Boundary Waters controversy. Yeah. We were, you know, the the transition from a predominantly industrial to a predominantly tourist economy was well underway, mm. and people, you know, I mean, the fishing industry was suffering, the lumbering industry, the big timber had all gone, and so what was left was, you know, pulp, yeah. paper making, you know, and and for mining, uh, we were down to taconite, we were down to, you know. The, many of the mines had gone out, and those that were left were huge. And there had been an exodus, you know, starting in the late '60s and '70s out right. of the area. The transition, yep. yeah. And was your family, you think, part of that exodus? Of well, my my family was part of the. My father was in a job where every time he got a promotion, he moved. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so which would actually I consider this a great blessing because. I've spent most of my life coming into places as an outsider, as a keenly interested observer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so that's here we are. <laughs> so we've we've gotten you through the '80s. You have the '90s and the 2000s before yep. we go to the 2018 poem. Tell me what was was going on for you during those times. So um, during the um, during much of the 90s, I, uh, I was working a series of jobs. Um, I was the executive director at L8 Park for a number of years, taking them through the, what was in, in the city of Minneapolis known as NRP, the Neighborhood Revitalization Process. And um, in terms of L8 Park, the question was how to keep the community accessible to poor people as opposed to you know, becoming a landing ground for high-rise apartments, and mm-hmm. which you can, which you see the fruit of that now. You know, yeah. Um, and then in the then in 1998, I got a Bush Leadership Fellowship, and I went to Chicago to work with a guy by the name of David Hunt. Bless his heart, David Hunt was one of the people who created the Chicago Housing Trust, and he he was a great believer in both community organizing and storytelling. And so he and I worked together for a number of years. Uh, working with David meant that basically I traveled every week, um, fly out of Chicago, go someplace, do work, fly back, change suitcases, change, you know, do laundry, fly out again, um, you know, uh, or work on various kinds and of projects. business and politics, is that where? It, it, yeah, yeah, most, it was, that was almost entirely business and politics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but the story was central to it and grounded in it. As an example, we did a project in Indianapolis with four neighborhoods, and they were all competing for a big box store. And <laughs> Sort of sad. <laughs> well, what happened is after we took them through the process and talked about 
you know, got them to identify stories of what what in the community they valued, which kinds of businesses supported the community. Mm-hmm. Three of the four neighborhoods said, ah, never mind. We don't want the big box store. Right. What we want to do is is find ways of supporting the barber shop and the, the hair salon. The local and, business right, that and, stays and, right, in the local area. Right. And that they, they begin to pressure the city of Indianapolis to to fund, you know, that kind of development as opposed to – you know, let's clear 40 acres and put mm-hmm. it in a parking lot. Oh, and a store beside. <laughs> now, I know uh, in policy work that I've been involved in, for housing in particular, um, there's a counter-narrative. There's a story in the background that has been developed by uh, other interested parties with money that that comes down to not in my neighborhood. Uh, uh, we can't have affordable housing because that would mean this whole other set of stories – that will kind of promote that maybe ain't so anyway, but it's it's it, a it's, it's a powerful the, it's counter the infamous story. Other, yeah. Know? Oh yeah. It'll yeah. be dangerous. It'll be crime. It'll be this, yeah. but it's it's fostered. Uh, but narrative, just just to chime in about that, man. I love that they did not do the big box. My grandfather was a, a local grocer in the far end of Lake Minnetonka when it was you know back mm-hmm. then it was the time where people went to summer. And vacation, <laughs> and it, and Mound was very strong about not wanting to have anything that was franchised. It mm-hmm. was, you know, they wanted their business and their business people, right? Uh, and there's a heart to that. Yeah. So share with us now the poem um, Laguardia and and set it up a little bit for us. So, um, in in 2018, uh, it was one of those years where I was um, going to funerals every month. Mm. Um, some were family, some were some were people I had worked with, some were people I had been in the religious life with. But the persistence of death was very much on my mind, and so uh, so here I am at LaGuardia, waiting for a flight. I had a Caesar salad and a dry martini, and wept as I actually tasted it. Or maybe it was my allergies, or the fact that I am going to die before I'm ready. Before every last I love you or holding close, no matter that we all face this end. I am counting the days, saying, there it is, like that grunt in Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, telling the newly arrived, you can't change what won't be changed. And death is one of those things. Yours, mine, ours. The only question worth asking is not where or when, but what did I bring to the world that made this life worth the living, worth the losing? Angie, the waitress, brought me a second vodka off the books, asking me if there was anything else that she could do to make my day better. And I replied, do you like working in Terminal C? She smiled and said her father thinks she's nuts serving strangers all day. But if food makes us happy, why shouldn't she bring that joy? And on hearing that, I added another five bucks to her tip. (laughs) This is what life has become for me, giving away that which has no value when the curtain falls. I love that she's at terminal see <laughs> we're all in different terminals aren't we right but and i also love that you look for the joy mm-hmm. in that moment oh yeah and and what does it mean oh yeah in, the, well. in our life trajectory as we get to this point and we want to give things away that 
aren't going to make any difference to us after we're gone. Yeah. So why not five more dollars? <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Why not yeah. five? You know. Yeah. You know. And that that poem has me aching a little bit. I mean, it, and it's in my heart. I can feel it. And uh, but I also realize that any time I'm smiling, it's the same place uh, that I can feel that. So it's a plot. It's it's just an amazing uh, mix uh, the other in that thing, poem. The other thing yeah. I find interesting is it's before COVID. Yeah, it is before COVID. Right. And you know it it was a solemn place to be. Right. Well, you know, and, and COVID just I I did a thing a, a year or so ago. I was um in 2021 I for a number of years I I go I've been going down to New Mexico for uh, any period of time, some, sometimes mm-hmm. just a few weeks, sometimes a couple of months. And in in the fall of 2021 as just as things were beginning to open up, uh, the Tartuga Gallery had a had a, a grief uh, session for the pandemic, and I and I performed as part of that. You know, and it was. Uh, uh, I I love New Mexico. It's a place I like to go. Um, I used to go more regularly. I, I haven't in a while. The land of enchantment. I mean, I've, I go. I start in Albuquerque, go up to Santa Fe, then to Taos, and mm-hmm. love to go to some of the powwows there as well. That yeah. they're they're enchanting and and exciting and. And those stories are very real and powerful too. Tell me about the grieving um, session. What was that? Well, what's interesting is if you think about the pandemic, mm-hmm. if you think about a million people dead, you know, and we're at that or close to that now, the acknowledgement is always on an individual level. My loss, your loss, you know, someone we know. Um, but there's not really been a community loss, a sense of there's not been any kind of ritual of grief for the larger frame. Mm-hmm. If you think about – Like World War II. I mean you, you have right. a, a large frame to that that you can have a, right. a, an emotional reaction to the community of what, what was lost. Right. Or, um, or if you think about the AIDS epidemic, yes. you know, the quilt yes. became a communal yeah. experience of grief. Right. And the making of the quilt, the combination, you know, contributing to it. And then, and then the, it. the touring. Right. So that it, it right. could be felt. Right. Nobody has done something on that scale for the pandemic, in part because it's still here. Yes. You know, and and in part because so much of the loss has been very much personalized. And we don't quite know how to fill the gap. It isn't, it isn't simply you know it isn't simply that someone died, but that they they took with them a history, a relationship to the community, they took with them work, you know they took their story oh yeah, and there's going to be an embarrassment if that collective loss is acknowledged though too, because there's a lot of irresponsibility that happened in high places, so mm-hmm. that that's another story I know we have to go to our next segment. Uh, but I do have one other question that I'll sneak in here, uh, and it, it's a book that you wrote about the wolf, inviting it, the wolf in. Inviting yes. the wolf is that part of what we need to do with grieving? Is inviting the wolf in? There is, yeah. There's certainly certainly elements in in that. The essence of inviting the wolf in is is really saying to people, you know, you we have all these stories of difficulty, and and we can choose to tell them from from a sense of loss or from a sense of acknowledgement of guilt 
And uh, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the guilt. It's the first step towards towards forgiveness. And might that be part of what we haven't done with COVID is acknowledge the guilt? I don't – well, we, we haven't acknowledged the loss yet. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's hard <laughs> to get to – Let's go for the loss first. first. Let's hard to, you know, <laughs> it's hard to get to the guilt yeah. without – you know. I like, I like the word responsibility for all that. Could guilt and shame don't have to be the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but at least knowing what – like did this happen or not? Yeah. 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 Yeah, right. It's a good start. And with that, we'll tell more stories in our next segment. Our last segment will we'll go to 2022 right. for one of the last poems. And we'll have Lauren share in his masterful way uh, the story of, of where we are now. So okay. stay with us. All right. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Lori Fitz, your host. I have Rick Bernardo as my co-host today and the, and the masterful storyteller, Lauren Nimi, who's yeah. been sharing his poems and his life story along with uh, the poems he shared. want to make sure that folks know how to get his book. It's a new book. It came out June, July. <laughs> Somewhere in there. <laughs> Recently, it came Recently, out. Recently, <laughs> yeah. This summer. <laughs> this summer, it did come out. Uh, the Breviary for the Lost. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and it is a beautiful book of poetry that uh, that can go from then to now <laughs> and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've been hearing about uh, Lauren's story. Now, Lauren, you also have um, a uh, American school of storytelling that you wanted to share with people. Yeah. So, yeah, as a result of the pandemic, I created the – uh, or as I sometimes call, identify myself, the, I'm the flounder of the <laughs> American School of Storytelling, which was a response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, substantially online classes um, around various storytelling topics. So as an example, in September, um, I'm going to be teaching a four-session, three, four-session class on an uh, in introduction to collecting family stories. And so the question, you know, it's like if you, you know, if you want to have mom or dad or grandparents, you know, oh, why didn't we get those stories? Well, this is how you do it. I'm going to show you. We'll tell you how to, what kinds of equipment you need, how to go about it in a way that's painless or relatively painless. So, you know, and what to do with it afterwards. That sounds so vital. There yeah. are so many stories that we do lose when we, we lose someone. Oh, yeah. But sometimes um, it's asking the right questions, isn't it, so that you can yeah. have them be supported in their storytelling. Yeah, right. And oftentimes, one of the things that I always often say when we talk about collecting family stories is, is you actually wind up doing two interviews. There's the interview where you kind of encourage them. And then there's the second interview where you go back and you ask them to fill in the details because uh-huh. they've thought about mm-hmm. details after they've oh, told the story. Smart. So you, you know. And then you can go back and then you can interweave and edit and right. however you right. want to help right. create and yeah. craft the story. Right. There is so that contexting. I've looked up the, um, the address, the website. It's – as it sounds, americanschoolofstorytelling.com. Yep. And huh. uh, you, can, <laughs> you can learn about the, the classes that they have as well as it's on Facebook. So check it out. Right. And I'm glad you started that. Yeah. So read us your poem. All right. So here's, here's the – this is the last poem in the book. That day comes again. Year after year, grief presides over the feast of memory. 
offering thin sour soup and spilled milk. The calendar does not care nor lie, so don't look at it. Not looking will not change what was. Here, the field, there, the forest. This is the only photograph you kept to remind you of how long the path. Birth and death with whatever is in between, a few short hours of happiness as place markers on a map of tears. Thank you. So tell me about your map. So uh, one of the things that, that I'm, you know, I'm of an age where, where the death is a kind of a constant and where the question becomes, what do you focus on? Do you focus on loss or do you focus on joy? Or do you focus on compassion or do you focus on injustice? Um, and although focusing on injustice is valuable, in the long run, if it's the only thing you hold on to, it's detrimental. Um, I, spent a, I spent over a decade working primarily with communities of color and immigrant communities on stories as advocacy, messaging stories, helping them engage in the civic process, in, you know. And one of the things that became clear during that period of time was these deeply embedded stories of injustice that kept people from acting. Um, you know, it's like, well, let, wait, let's put the injustice aside and say, what is possible now? You know, what takes this one step closer to what you want? And in one minute, is that joy? If you, yeah, it can be, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And it's finding that one thing. Yeah. I'm, I have only 50 seconds left. I'm just so aware that you know, the whole stories move through all of that. And uh, what I'm hearing is that how do we keep it moving? And Lauren, we're going to invite you back because nope. okay. we, 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 need to, we need to talk more. And I, <laughs> I, I, I don't have enough with 30 seconds. So thank you <laughs> for being here today. Thank you for sharing your poetry, your thoughts. Um, allowing us to promote your your wonderful book um, and for giving us something to think about. Okay. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lauren. And stay with us next week uh, here on Connections Radio Show, the progressive voice of Minnesota. 